everyone, and welcome to another episode of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy, uh, there's a lot of ways you can go here. Uh, Syracuse is going to win the national championship this year, week? Sure. Is that what we're, is that what we're, we're learning? Probably. I mean, <laughs> we're, 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 if we're taking our current win percentage, Dan, extrapolating it out, uh, it, it would seem that we are, we are en route. We're certainly on track. We are, I mean, let's just, let's lay it out. No one defeated ACC team has ever missed a college football playoff. That's just, that's just facts. facts the ACC only. has never missed a college football playoff. So if we go undefeated, I mean, we're going to win the national championship, guys. Sorry. Facts It's just, it's, it is what it is. We beat Florida State. They are a multiple-time defending national champion. Ignore what the haters are saying about the Knowles this year. That's a, that's a team full of stars. And I mean, Dan, to take a cue from some of our uh, Facebook commenters, I would also counter you with, we, as, as the media and fans, we're not allowed to talk about anything but the next game. Because that's true. if we you are... do, you're violating some sort of code. Well, we know that this podcast gets piped directly into the 1963 locker room in the Carrier Dome. So <laughs> I would I feel bad already having so be said because we know that Eric Dungy and the the, the turf pellets in Eric Dungy's eye uh, and Tommy DeVito and everyone are are listening to us and just just getting in their own heads about how good they are. Yeah, so it's crazy. We cannot possibly discuss anything further except for the Connecticut Huskies. Drats messed it up for everyone. Um... Well, the worst you did bring up one point that i think we should start with um, obviously syracuse beat florida state resoundingly 30 to 7 on saturday su's first win over the Knolls since 1966 their first win um, which I, I like that stat because it acts like we play them all the time we, we played them historically all the time right which um False. is not the case <laughs> yeah we uh this was our fifth straight meeting 14, 15, 16, I'm looking 15. up the M. Here's our sixth street, sixth consecutive meeting, and we're now two and ten against them all time. Yeah, it's like obviously we hadn't beaten them yet, and this again, like three straight years we've beaten. I would argue the like if, in recent history, I would argue the three most successful programs in the conference. Yeah. Historically, probably you have to put Miami over over Tech. Clemson, not over all of them, honestly. Oh yeah. But over Clemson and Tech for sure. But in the last like decade, in like the modern, let's say. BCS plus Tulsa Wall era, probably the three most consistently successful programs in the ACC, and we've beaten them three, uh, three for three in the last three years, which is really awesome. Um, so I, I mean, it's just another. Uh, obviously, Florida State's not very good. I think any team that has two uh, has an offensive line like that is going to have serious, serious issues. Um, and I, I whew, shudder to think what happens when they play Clemson later this year, but. It's still a team that's littered with talent. I think uh, they sit. I think they're the, their worst recruiting class in terms of the players on campus now, at least over the last five years, ranked like 11th, and that was this past season when they were undergoing a coaching change. Our best ranked 50th twice. So there's a lot of talent on that Florida State roster. I, I get there's a transitional period. It doesn't totally erase like the fact that at any moment Cam Akers could have broken a 90. I mean, like he did in Virginia Tech, he broke like a 95-yard run. And, like, that could happen because of individual basis. And we've seen Syracuse lose games like this against that kind of differential when Syracuse outplayed, like, the Clemson game a couple years ago that we lost. Like, Clemson just made a couple more plays. They had, like, a couple talents that we just couldn't account for on every play. On Sunday, or on Saturday, we accounted for Florida State pretty much every play, aside from, like, a couple big games here and there. But it was, it, Syracuse just looked like the better team completely. 
Oh, 100%. And like, uh, we'll get into some of Bill Connolly's numbers, but but if you look at like the post-game win expectancy, we had the same post-game win expectancy against Florida State, 99%, based on how we played, that we did against Wagner, which I think is a testament to how much Florida State's struggling, but more than that, I think it's a testament to how well Syracuse played on Saturday and how much better that, that score scoring margin could have potentially been. Yeah, I said it on Twitter, I think, after the game. Like, the game that most reminded me of of recent Syracuse vintage was the 2009 Rutgers game, where we played a team, they were ranked, and just because of the defensive uh, pressure, which we, have, we haven't seen, at, definitely not in the Babers era, we haven't seen since some of those better Schaefer defenses. Like, I want to see, have you seen a quarterback hits number for DeAndre Francois? Because it felt like he got hit 80% of the time he dropped back. He was only hit five times. No, sorry, that's hurries, not hits. So that just does not sound accurate at all. Yeah, he according to SU's numbers, he was hit. He was hurried five times. He was sacked four times. So I, I okay, so, so just count. <laughs> yeah, so 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 that basically, I mean, I would assume that most of those hurries were hits as well. So that brings us to potentially like nine hits. I'm generally true through that number because it really doesn't feel like accurate for how many times. I mean, how many times did he drop back? He, he threw 36 passes. It felt like a lot more. Um, yeah, that's only 25% of the passes. I mean, yeah, he I. In the backfield. It was disgusting. Especially the, the plays that went viral where the, two, the offensive, both tackles just completely overmatched. Well, the other problem is the guards, as like, I don't know if you read Bud's piece today. Uh, I did not. But Elliot had a great piece in Tomahawk Nation because a lot of Knowles fans were talking about afterwards going like, like how did it, how did it get this bad? Like, obviously, like, SU's had some bad offensive lines in, in, in recent years, but, like, we knew how it got that bad. Knowles fans were very confused as to how it got that bad that quickly. Um, and, and, you know, Bud kind of talked about the role of injuries, the role of some attrition, but um, in particular the fact that, like, both tackles, I'm pretty sure, are, are actually guards. Um, and, and that kind of created some mismatches right off the bat, and it's something that you saw us exploit right in your game's early minutes and never kind of let up. Yeah, and it's not like... like I think our defensive line has some very nice players. I think Alton Robinson's a, a solid pass rusher. I think Slayton's obviously very good. We have like good individual talents, but this has not been a defensive line that has ever been great at getting after the quarterback through Brian, the Brian Ward era on defense here. And to see like the kind of pass rush that we were generating... Um, even against like what is some like a bad offensive line, like there are bad offensive lines. This is a different animal, and I don't know if it was like kind of like a blood in the water situation where the guys just kind of knew they had the mismatch, so they were just going all at it. And I think we definitely dialed up more pressure than we than we have in the past, but it was very stark because like this is not a great pass rushing team. At least has not been this year, and has not been for the last you know two plus years now. So unless there's like a stark change that happened this week, it was like really really shocking. Yeah, I mean, I think we, I think the coaches probably saw the same thing that we did watching the tape the first time, and, and for some of us the second time. Although, I do fast forward through the uh, defensive drives for Syracuse, so that I'm not, you know, marathoning four hour games again. You, you did see that, you know, even against Wagner, when Syracuse was able to quickly dial up pressure, quarterbacks panicked and really didn't have much time to throw. It gave our defensive backs better, you know, ability to get in position, defend passes. The more time you gave. 
you've given Syracuse opponents to throw this year, uh, the better off they've done. And that goes for most pe- most teams. But I, I think the difference when we're when we're dialing up pressure and when we're not for Syracuse is pretty stark. Um, the, the the difference here and you know compared to the Wagner game even was I feel like we were we were getting a lot of pressure not with special blitzes and not with different you know stunts and things like that but we were getting pressure with you know a four man front just bum rushing their like porous offensive line and I don't think that fans should necessarily you know extrapolate that out to the rest of our season but nonetheless like if you look at like again bring up some of Bill Connolly's numbers that were just released today he he has the first three games up now defensive wise we are uh 12% 12.5% success rate on blitz downs that's fifth best in the country blitz down big play rate that's two and a half percent that's 24th best in the country and then the blitz down sack rate is uh 16.1 percent that's 27th best in the country all buoyed in large part by um you know the efforts on Saturday and I think you know for as much attention as Babers puts on this offense, and we put on this offense, and I personally put on this offense. This defense uh, really kept SU in a game um, on Saturday in a first half when they seemingly couldn't do anything right under center. Um, no offense to Eric Dungy or Tommy DeVito, but it just wasn't working out. Um, and this defense managed to carry them through the first half and, and then help energize them in the second once the offense really started getting rolling. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm, not, I'm just skimming through Bud's piece now that you referenced. Um, I did not realize they have, like, guards playing tackle and that is uh very apparent on the lack of like kick slide speed that we saw on the edge like the guard and tackle are not not similar positions um they don't play the same way there are like obviously the fundamentals are the same but it takes uh a different still set to pass block along the edge than it does in the middle and that was very apparent now uh seeing the issues they had uh plugging in like backup guards into like the tackle spots when we had speed rushers on the edge so uh, that was very informative. <laughs> uh, something else interesting, as I'm going through more of Bill C's numbers, uh, overall havoc rate, 18.2%. That's 53rd. And defensive line havoc rate, 28th overall at 7.1. Through Again, the whole season. Uh, so far, yes. So numbers that we really haven't seen since probably Schaefer's first year as head coach, which is yeah, not, not recently. <laughs> no, that's a good sign. And that's something we, we kind of thought we might see a little bit more of with the the, the shifts in how we're, like, aligning our defense. We thought, like, we might be dialing up for some more speed, some more athleticism. Obviously, it hasn't been, like, the full bore change to the uh, four two five, but um, situationally it's there. And uh, that was supposed to allow to get more speed on the field and, and a little more – I mean, I think we've seen that, especially with how, how well the defensive backs have played this year uh, compared to the last couple at least. 100%. And honestly, like, uh, one thing that, you know, I haven't heard anything one way or another, but – uh, as you might remember, Chris Frederick went down probably midway, maybe a little bit past in the fourth quarter uh, with an apparent hand or wrist injury. Uh, we haven't heard anything because we don't, we won't hear anything about injuries anymore because the ACC made him completely taboo to talk about. Uh, but that's something to watch um, as we get later in the week. If Frederick's practicing, if Frederick is available for media, like. He's someone who I didn't think he always had the best game against Wagner, but I do think that, you know, he is one of our best defensive players. I think, you know, he did have that big pick against Florida State, obviously, that helped, you know, keep the tide in Syracuse's favor. In, in general, like, 
him being healthy is critical. I, I do like some of our, you know, reserve pieces there, but Frederick is one of the most uh, experienced guys on this defense. Um, and it's worth watching his health because losing him um, could have a much bigger impact than people might realize. Yeah, he was the guy who basically, he was the one part of that, that secondary that didn't totally collapse during the Western Michigan third quarter. Um, he's been consistently uh, our best cornerback, uh, our best cover guy. Julian Wiggum's been like raving about him for three weeks, and that's a pretty good indicator that he's playing well. But if you actually go and look, like he's like he has not been the problem in the spots where we have gotten beat deep. So uh, hopefully that is that is not a significant injury because it will be uh, pretty impactful if he's out for any extended period of time. Not that I I think Trill Williams has played pretty well for a freshman in, in spots. I think he would probably be the the first guy to step in there. But um, it's not what you want. You want, I mean, Frederick's been one of our two or three most important defensive pieces easily. And honestly, probably one of like the five most important guys on the team this year so far. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, like you said, Trill's done really well. Like Afitu Melifonwu is like another guy you want to see on the field at some point. But we don't have to rush that process, I think. You know, Frederick's earned his spot at a starting corner. I think at times last year, like he performed like a top 10 to top 15 corner in, in, the, in the conference. Like... I, I don't necessarily think he can do that for a full season, but who knows? I, I think even if he performs like a top 20 corner in the conference for a full season, that, that that's a major upgrade for Syracuse and, and something that we desperately need. Because you know what? Like t- Teams are going to continue to try to throw on us, um, and, and not every team has a switch cheese offensive line the way Florida State does. Yeah, and his, his lockdown coverage abilities on the outside are why you're getting to see more playmaking from, from our safeties, especially Andre Sisco, who has what, three picks now in the last two weeks. And those have been largely over the middle. You're not going to get that if you don't have a guy like Frederick, you know, taking, taking a side of the field off, uh, you know, off the map for the quarterback. Absolutely. And you know what, like another guy that's worth bringing up in the defense while we're dedicating these first 10 minutes or so to defensive talk, um, Keelan Whitner, who ended up being honored as uh, the ACC linebacker of the week. Guy had 11 tackles, forced a fumble, was really just – and a very dynamic just player all across the field. His his safety experience, I think, really comes in handy. He was able to help generate pressure. He was playing in coverage. Um, he was help run-stopping. Like, Whitner was very versatile. And I think this is this is the type of role that, that, that Babers and, and defensive coordinator Brian Ward really uh, envisioned for, for Whitner uh, in particular is just, you know, kind of a jack-of-all-trades, but someone who, who has an ability to lock down his portion of the field. I, I wouldn't extrapolate out everything you saw from the Florida State game, but but just Whitner's presence and how he was used successfully or unsuccessfully going forward, I, I think that's worth watching. Yeah, he was very impressive. I mean, it, it yes, the fact that he was voted best linebacker this week when it wasn't like a, a super, like I don't think we were jumping to talk about Keelan Whitner after the game, but I imagine uh, on the rewatch he really stands out, especially, I mean, 11 tackles is a really strong effort overall, especially uh, given how much Florida State really struggled to get anything going on the ground. They, they averaged only 2.7 yards a carry. Akers was fine, but it wasn't, you know, he never really broke open one of the long ones as long as it was 17, and that was like, you know, a meager run uh, at, at midfield. It wasn't like getting them into uh, some huge spot. Uh, Francois broke broke a long one, because, but because of how culture stats are, are uh, attributed, he ended up with neg- negative three yards as of all the sa- uh, just the sacks. Uh, I hate that we still do that in college football, by the way. So um, bad. One of my huge pet peeves, because it makes it impossible to actually look at the bot store and judge how a running quarterback did. Um, CFP stats takes it out, I think. Somewhere does. Uh, CFP stats might, might. Either them, I think college football reference might, but I can't remember. 
Um, it's really frustrating either way. But you just, it's hard to, to really – obviously, the offensive line for Florida State like makes it hard to super like judge this completely. But we even got more pressure than like Virginia Tech did, and I know they were more healthy during that game. But it was just a really standout performance all around, and hopefully this is – you know that team starting to gain a little more confidence and uh, and step up for some of these big games down the stretch, uh, where we have now a lot of very winnable but also very losable ACC games coming up, and and it's going to like I mean, we talked about it going into the season, but like this the the middle part of our of our schedule here and like the meat of the ACC Atlanta is really going to tell the story of how successful this team can be because like basically this whole like Florida State might be the worst team in this division this time this year and. I don't think there's another team that's that like looks bad yet, and a lot of them like Boston College looks better than we we certainly thought. Wake Forest looks solid, even though all the changes that have happened there. NC State looks like NC State. Like it's it's we're very lucky in North Carolina this year, uh, and Pitt. You know, Pitt looked pretty mediocre, but then they beat Georgia Tech last week. So I also don't um, really don't know what to think about Georgia Tech. Though. That's very fair, as um, is typical of the coastal. Yes. The, the Atlantic below Clemson actually looks like kind of like a, a coastally, it's very coastally. Yeah, you, you have six teams that can go six and six. And, I mean, Florida State being the least likely at this point to go six and six. Um, and it's still not out of the question that they, that they get better during the season. Totally. There's a lot of talent there, and, like, the people over there that are, that are like, calling for Willie Tackert's job already, like, guys, You're dumb. <laughs> just calm down. One year. Like... Give it. You have to give it at least two and a half before we're doing anything. It's not like he hasn't accomplished stuff in Florida and at like a relatively big time school. Oregon probably would have won nine games last year if Justin Herbert doesn't get hurt. So it's uh, very quick. I get the frustrations after one game, but you'd think that like a couple days later people would calm down. I do understand. Like I mean, in part, like it's part of pressure, but also like I do understand some of the complaints about Francois in the system where he doesn't necessarily know his reads yet. If he doesn't know his reads yet, like how how little grasp does James Blackman have on this offense? That's a very good question because uh, Francois, it wasn't like one of those quarterback battles that came down to the, like the last couple days. Like they named Francois early enough, um, and he, I mean, we talked about it last week. He was super impressive two years ago in a much more complex system, um, a very different system. It's not like you know if you can play Jimbo Fisher's, you can play anything, but like the dude at Heisman hype coming into last year. And uh, obviously he got hurt in the first, I think the first half against Alabama. But it wasn't like he, he was completely overmatched in college, in college football and shouldn't be starting. Like, I was pretty scared of DeAndre Francois entering this game because I had seen him all of 2016 look like probably one of the 10 to 15 best quarterbacks in college football, despite being a uh, redshirt freshman at that point who got hit so, about as much as he did uh, on Saturday the whole season. Very, very dungy-like uh, amount of just completely huge shots he takes. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's perplexing that he hasn't been better um, in this system. Even if there are growing pains, you would think, you would think he, would, he would have at least more, more like singular big plays, and they just haven't really come. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree there. I, I think he's been, for everything that, that we know he is as, as, a, as a quarterback talent, it's odd that he hasn't really been able to overcome, and like, I think he'll. I think he gets there. I think Florida State gets there just by way of the talent on the roster. But I am surprised that they're so ill-suited for this attack right now, and like, it doesn't really look like there's a way out, which 
very strange that, that, that they would be in a very similar situation to what we were in just a couple of years ago, if not worse, somehow. Yeah, it's weird to see. I mean, it's jarring to see a team like Florida State kind of hit this this low. But it, remind, I mean, it reminds you that it can really happen to any program. I mean, Alabama hit Alabama before Saban got there. Now, not every program has the resources to pull Nick Saban out of the NFL, but like college football, we, we, we tend to like fall into these these thought patterns of like every this this team will be good every year and this team is hopeless. But like we just saw Kansas win a game fifty five to thirteen, um, and Kansas looked dead two two weeks ago, and they might still be dead. But like things do change in this sport. Um, maybe not like like the full long term because the, the teams that have been powers usually remain powers and it's hard to break through. But on a year to year basis or like a five year to five year basis, like you can see ebbs and flows. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree there. I mean, look at what Syracuse used to be and look what we are now and look at what we, what we might be this year and maybe going forward. Who knows? I um, think that uh, talk about changes and all that, you know, brings in a, a good segue to talk a little bit about the offense before halftime. Um, in particular, the fact that Eric Dungy left in the second quarter. Um, it was after a, head, a hit to the head, but it did seem like that, at least according to Babers, Dungy, and everybody else, that it was not a concussion or any head injury related. Rather, it seemed like the pellets that are on the field, and for anyone that stepped on the dome or any dome surface knows, there's those black pellets that are on the field. It seems like one to two of those might have gotten in his eye, creating some blurry vision. Um, his eyes got dilated to help rectify that, but as a result, um, he didn't come in for the second half. Uh, Dungy was 7-15 to 15 for 75 yards. Uh, not necessarily an efficient start for him. You definitely saw, and I'm going to look at this on the rewatch tonight, you definitely saw a uh, an offense that had a, a very lackluster play calling set. Definitely wasn't calling for him to throw that much. Definitely wasn't calling for him to run that much. Uh, it was very very confusing early on. SU still had the six nothing lead at half. However, um, Tommy DeVito came in and and you know what? Like he light the world ablaze. And I think we didn't really need him to. But eleven of sixteen, one hundred and forty four yards, one touchdown, averaged nine yards uh, per attempt. Very, very good game, and honestly, like he also was smart enough, him and the coaching staff, to like let him ease himself into it, but let this run game, which was more efficient than the numbers might bear out, like let them really control things. And you know, between Marquenzie Pierre, Jarvin Howard, Jarvin Howard once again had another impressive performance, five uh, carries for 55 yards late. Um, Moniel was 19 for 75, um, but did have a couple really good runs to help us start off drives, like. The running game doesn't look much, much better, but 3.9 yards per carry, like that, that's a step in the right direction for the game, and that includes, like, you know, sack numbers and crap like that. So it's probably more over four, which uh, which is really, like, when Dan and I talked about, you know, the run game in the offseason, that was what we said, is kind of like, you can get to four yards a carry, that's going to make a, an enormous difference. So I, I think that's interesting, as is the receiving game. Dan, once again, you and I kind of calling this early on, uh, that it would look much more like a uh, a kind of you know family affair um, than than targeting two guys the way we've seen the last couple of years and once again uh, seven different players caught passes of those five caught at least two no one caught more than four um, I, I'm I'm totally fine with this yeah I was uh, I was a fan of uh, especially when Devito came in because Dungy the last two drives he was in like you could tell he was not right the play that I pointed to. Uh, was in, I think, his last drive or, or second to last drive, there was a third and one where he kind of took, like, a quarterback, like, uh, it was probably probably an option play, but he was, like, one of those dungy, you know, done a keep no matter what. 
uh, and he took it left, and he had a lane to turn up, like, a little early. Did not um, do it. And would have gained six or seven yards without being touched, and instead he took it all the way to the sideline and got stopped short of the first down marker. Uh, and there was some plays before that where, like, he just didn't look. He was playing very tentatively, which, as we all know, is not Eric Dungy by any means. Uh, that's, like, the last word I would ever use to describe him playing. Um, and he just didn't look right. So, but well, whether it was the vision thing, which would make sense, honestly, based on, on how he was playing, plus the fact that we were not calling passes for him for a bit there. With the shoulder um, nonsense, the elbow nonsense. The shoulder stuff. Like, early on, he looked okay because he had caught that long one to Custis. That should have been a touchdown. The Custis dropped, um, and the pass is gorgeous. But that was before, I think, he started, like, whatever his issues were. And then as the game went on, like, he clearly just didn't have it. So putting in DeVito was the right move. And then Tommy was really good. Like, it, it's, uh, you know, he wasn't, like, uh, it, I, the people that were calling for, like, the, and I think a lot of them were sarcastic, but calling for, like, the job switch. Like, guys. There's a lot of people now. seriously calling for a job switch right now. There were now. definitely some serious ones. Like, Eric Dungy was putting up stupid video game numbers for, through two weeks and also is the guy who beat Clemson last year and had us on pace to make a bowl last year before he got hurt and was really good as a freshman. Like, we've seen a lot of Eric Dungy to know he's what we can do with him. Right. Uh, DeVito's in a good time this year, and, you know, if, if Dungy's not 100%, which it sounds like where he's fine to play for UConn based on what they said today, but in the world where he wasn't 100%, I would be totally in on DeVito playing the UConn game and just keeping Dungy for Clemson, or even playing Dungy, uh, DeVito against Clemson and keeping Dungy for the, the games that we really need to win. It sounds like he's okay, which is good. But yeah. DeVito, like, I think that was a, a nice preview of what we have looking forward to next year. Honestly, yeah. I, again, you and I have how, you and I have said this the last two years now. Like, the, the current offense with Dungy in charge is good, but it's not really what this offense is supposed to be. The offense with DeVito is what the offense is supposed to be, and you saw a lot of that where they finally opened up the play calling a little bit for him because we actually had a game to continue playing in and winning uh, with him there, and the defense did its part, so he wasn't in the same scenario he was in against Western Michigan. Again, DeVito hyper-efficient, did what, what he had to do. He didn't take unnecessary risks. Offensive line was still not necessarily protecting him as well as we would have liked, but you know what? He, he came he, along. Yeah, it, took it, it did. Bit. Yeah, it did. It took a little bit, but he persevered. He didn't have the uh, the snap issues and the exchange issues that that we saw in previous games where he was just getting you know bad snaps sent his way. It seemed like that seemed good. And honestly, like I, I hope that Dino makes the shift here with Jarvin Howard as the uh, he doesn't even have to be the third down back. I just want him to be like the back inside the twenty. I would like to see Jarvin be the back inside the twenty. I wouldn't mind him being like. Uh, the, you can't make him like the the like quote unquote like regular power running back because then it's too obvious. But right. I want to see him and Mo be more of the the duo in terms of rushing the ball. And then I would almost rather have Strickland be the third down back on like passing situations where because he's he's a good pass he's a really good pass catcher. He can break those long runs if you want to run like a draw or something. Um, and also he has the pass blocking. Um, but I think I think all three need to be heavily involved here. And I think Howard needs to start to break through to that first team. Because they are all, they're all very different running backs, which is nice. Like, it's not like Howard is anything really like Neal or Strickland, and those two aren't alike either. Um, so it would be nice. I, I, think, I think they could complement each other, and it's just a matter of finding the right situations. Howard's but a monster. Overall, I, I, I love him. It's, 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 he looked, like, really, really good. And I know that it was later in the game, and, and we had kind of broken things open, but, like, Florida State was trying to salvage something there. It wasn't like they were, you know, it wasn't like they were pulling their starters and whatnot. Like, I'm pretty sure he was getting working as the first-team Florida State defense, and I don't think Florida State wanted to lose 30-7. to 
um, when he was in there. So he looked great. I mean, 55 yards on five carries is all you really need to know. And then just back to DeVito, like, it definitely looked like while in the Western Michigan game, we put in DeVito, we were still calling the Eric Dungy offense. Against Florida State, it looked like a different offense. Um, because, we, and to Baber's credit, like, he has molded this thing around what Dungy can do. Dungy's a very specific player. He's not a, he's not like a lot of quarterbacks. He has a very distinct style, and I think he's 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 grown into it, and he's we've actually shifted it more towards his strengths this season than, than trying to fit him into something he might not be totally comfortable with. Um, DeVito's very different. He, he can run. He's... Uh, I think they were said after the first game, he's probably faster than Dungy, like, straight ahead. He just doesn't have the same, like, like fullback, like, in the open field mentality. Um, thank God for that, because I don't know if I could emotionally handle that for another quarterback. Um, I don't think anyone could. <laughs> I, I, we're, we're learning to cope with Dungy doing it. Um, but he just, he's a stronger arm. Um, he's he's going to make different types of throws. Definitely more of, like, those NFL throws, like the, the, the one the one to trust us oh, that, that went out so to Warren. Good was unbelievable on both of their accounts. So, yeah, it just the, – the arm talent is crazy. There's a reason that at that Elite 11 a couple years ago, I'm pretty sure he finished second behind Tua Tagovailoa, and I'm not saying he compared to Tua Tagovailoa, who's probably the best quarterback in college football right now, and throw and is just, like, an unbelievable rare talent. But DeVito's arm is up there with pretty much everyone else in college football, and I think we'll, we're going to be very, very happy to see that down the road. But – this is Eric Dungy's team for for this season, as it, as it well should be, and as it will be best served to be. Hundred percent. I think as long as Dungy can go at a seventy five percent clip, I think it's his. Um, I am very curious to see. I think, feel like the shoulder injury that popped up in in the first half of the Western Michigan game is more of an issue than anyone's going to tell us about. It seems definitely. Uh, definitely feel like. Like, Dungy threw well last week, but then this week I just felt like from the get, like, obviously that thing that happened on the first drive where he, like, clutched at his elbow, and then from there on, like, he just didn't look like he was on necessarily. He had a couple nice throws in there, but he had a couple, like, lesser throws in there, too. Like, I am curious about his overall health, um, but, again, if he can go at 75% or greater, uh, you have to take that risk at this point because his, his dynamicism... You know, as, as as a runner, is is very compromising to defenses, and and you know, Devito worked against Florida State. Um, it'll probably work against UConn, and we'll get to that. But like against some of the other teams, in the ACC, like that that versatility is really what's going to kind of guide us through. Yeah, we're still you know putting the right pieces together, but um, I think next year will be a much different look offense, and something that and like we've said, like I think that's we'll see more of what the what the Babers offense will look like, but I think he's done a nice job of making the, you know, kind of blending the two, the what he inherited with what he uh, wants to do. But like oh, we, we alluded to it before, I think it's nice to see some of these receivers start to uh, start to separate themselves and, and see what their abilities were, especially our, our like pet favorites on the on the podcast have kind of emerged, which is nice. I mean, not to say we we, we called any of this because we didn't, but. Um, yeah, and, and again, nice to see Custis emerge over time. Nice to see Pierce start to move into a much bigger red zone threat. Um, Strickland, you know, being a pass catcher is great. Honestly, like, Nike Johnson is going to be an absolute monster, and I can't wait to see him, like, fully bloom into what he's going to turn into. Devin Butler didn't have a bad game. That swing pass to Jarvie and Howard was dope. Like, that, where he was just on tear and, like, I didn't think he was much of a pass catching option, but that to me, like said, like 
if he runs like that as a pass catcher, um, we've, we've got some real potential on our hands here for a guy who's going to light the entire conference on fire. Yeah, it's uh, it's really exciting. And it's just it's just great to see like different different types of guys. And also, if Nike Johnson wants to completely steamroll a probably former blue chip. Oh uh, God, back, that was such a nice hit. <laughs> like whoever saw that coming from him. Five eight, like one eighty, lowers his shoulder and just, just knocks the guy out on his ass. It was awesome, so cool. That and the and the dungy stiff arm, the stiff arm to hell from week <laughs> one, are probably the two like physical highlights of the season. Uh, on offense, for sure. I would have to agree. Um, all right. Now we've been going for a while, so we'll do a little halftime here quick, and then we will proceed to some UConn preview, as everybody is probably here for, hopefully. Yes, UConn football talk. The thing mm. that brings the people. Gets the people going. Uh, Dan, you are up first. All right. Um, so it was my birthday weekend. Uh, not a huge... Uh, craft beer weekend, but I had a couple as as I'm wont to do. I'd say the, the the biggest surprise, the two the two most notable ones. Um, I was at a, a beer garden on Friday night, and I'm going to just destroy this name, which is very German. But it is a it was the Braufactum Progusta from Radeberger Gruppe, uh, which was a, an amberish kind of more of a, a, a lager. Uh, Along the same lines of like a you know a, what you get from like a Yingli or something, but had more like citrusy flavors. Uh, definitely a, a more interesting uh, flavor profile in general. I had a couple of those, quite delicious. I had I also had a Sweet Baby Jesus from Declaw, uh, which uh, was described to me as tasting like a peanut butter cup, and did taste a lot like a peanut butter cup. Big fan um, of that beer. Yeah, really good. I hadn't had it before, but I'd seen it a lot like around recently. So I figured uh, there was a reason for that. So uh, definitely like very, uh, very silky, smooth peanut butter flavor um, with the chocolatey notes, but nothing like crazy. Also like way more drinkable than it probably should be for like a pretty dark porter. Uh, really enjoyed that. Uh, and then I also had some Kona Big Waves, which, you know, just, just for something drinkable. Um, I had Hell or High Watermelon for my first amendment. Those, you know, you can kind of find everywhere, so those are less exciting. But the uh, the, the Braufactum and the uh, Sweet Baby Jesus were probably the two highlights. Very, very nice. Yeah, I haven't had Sweet Baby Jesus in a while. My uh, my wife's allergic to peanuts, so I try not to have too much of stuff like that in the house. Yeah, I, I don't know how much, like, the peanuts are directly involved in the brewing process, right. but, I mean, they have to be there somewhere. Yeah. There, there's some beers that actually, like, take the allergens out so that you can even drink it if you do have a peanut allergy. Oh, nice. But yeah, I don't. I don't really like to play that game. Yeah, it's not worth the risk. There are yeah. other beers. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many other beers. Um, my weekend had a decent amount of beer. Um, went to a new spot for dinner over in Hermosa Beach. Uh, they had a racer five around, so I figured have that. Popped over to Hermosa Beach Brewing Company, a place that I'd wanted to go. Sorry, Hermosa Brewing Company. They don't have beach in the name. Um, a place that I'd wanted to go for a while. Recently opened this year. Um, had a liquid gold IPA as a West Coast style. It was pretty good, as well as a peer-to-peer, their uh, pale ale. Um, both were good. Really cool spot. TVs, some board games, dogs allowed. So typical, uh, typical, just hanging out by the beach type stuff. Um, from Eleven Below Brewing in Texas, had a negative space uh, milk stout that was pretty good. I'd had that in the fridge for a while. My quest for the uh, white oak highlight uh, came to an end yesterday. Went to a beer belly in Long Beach and had it on draft. 
It was very good. Glad that I finally got to try that one out. Nice. I still have three sitting in my fridge. I, I also had one of those this weekend, but I didn't want to bring it up two weeks in a row. But I probably should because it's really, really good. Yes, it's still very good. Um, had from Mumford, had their Lightworks uh, New England style double IPA. That was very good. And then uh, Long Beach Beer Lab, which is, I think it opened last year um, in Long Beach. It was a goza called a Warning May Contain Fruit. I think it was pineapple and something else in there. But uh, pretty light, but enjoyable at this, this spot, Beer Belly. They have a couple locations in L.A. Um, I'd been to their one in Koreatown, so went to the, uh, the Long Beach uh, locale to meet up with some friends. Uh, very, very good spot. Uh, also had a fried chicken Cuban. This is just diverting into food briefly. If anyone's ever in Long Beach, go to Beer Belly. Get the fried chicken Cuban because it's really goddamn good. That sounds like an experience. It, it definitely is. Um, another experience, uh, UConn football or, or, or whatever, whatever they may be at current since, honestly, I, I'm not really sure what they are. They're better than UTEP. They're better than UTEP. That's, that's <laughs> good, I guess. UConn is one and two. They squeaked by Rhode Island. There was a plane going over me, so excuse the noise. But, uh, yeah, it took pretty much the entire game to pull out a 56-49 to win over U-Ride. This after two straight blowout losses to uh, ranked UCF and ranked Boise State. This game was a disaster for UConn. I feel like UConn fans pretty much are treating this like a loss, um, similar to how we did against Villanova uh, several years back in 2014. Yeah, Rhode Island's quarterback threw for 351 yards, four touchdowns. They ran for almost 200 yards on the ground. They pretty much did whatever they wanted. But David Pindell, a guy who I know you and I talked about it before the show, like UConn is, is, is bad, very bad. But um, at the same time, Pindell does con- concern me just because of you know the type of player that Syracuse has typically struggled against. Uh, Pindell was 20-27 for 308 yards and four touchdowns. Um, against Rhode Island. He also had 26 carries for 137 yards and another two scores on the ground. So despite the fact that UConn is bad, despite the fact that UConn's defense is very bad, apparently, Pindell's pretty good. I mean, those were a lot of yards. It's, uh, you know, 445, six scores. Like, this is not exactly... This is going to be framed as a cakewalk, and I don't really think it is. Um, I think we can still win by double digits for sure, but... Um, I, I think that stopping this team is going to take maybe a little bit more than than fans think, and like we're we're going to have to to keep a man on Pindell, and that's proved to be very very difficult over the last like decade plus now, um, despite the fact that we've had numerous mobile quarterbacks at, at Syracuse. Yeah, he's really the only reason that I'm like vaguely concerned, and I'm not really concerned about winning. I think we'll win the game handily. I am like vaguely concerned about him keeping this closer than it should be. Um, his numbers are good. And I think, like, UConn's whole thing, like, they're bad. Their stuff's all deflated because they played two of the best G5 teams out there to start the season. So um, I know, like, Bill C's numbers have UConn at 129th, and that is adjusted for opponent. And Boise State losing pretty bad to Oklahoma State probably didn't help him this weekend in that regard. But overall, like, Pindell is, is scary and seems to have t- uh, the talent to, like, break a game. Granted, like, Boise State pretty much shut him out, but... He's flashed here and there against US, UCF, so I think there's a chance that uh, there's a chance that this one ends up being uh, slightly closer than it should be. But if if you, uh, Syracuse doesn't win by probably two or three scores, like something 
really, really wrong happened here. That being said, I also wouldn't be shocked if Syracuse went out and, and blasted him by, by 30 or 40 points. Because, like, the underlying numbers are really, really bad. And they've given up so much, so much scoring. Also, amazingly, they've only attempted one field goal. And it was 44 uh, yards. I don't know how that works. See, I actually buy that because if you're down by as much as they've been down for most of these games, you just, uh, you figure your field goal's not going to do anything if we're down 30. That makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Um, right now, Bill C's numbers project us to win by 33.6 points. We have a 97% win probability. I don't really buy either of those things. <laughs> I think we're, we're very conditioned to be, like, cautious in these situations. Probably more cautious than we need to be, but... Like we're still we're still Syracuse, so until we you know are just blasting this type of team every week, which is not the case. Like, see the Western Michigan game. I'm going to be like, I'm going to have like a hint of a hint of like you know nervousness heading in. Not that I think we'll lose by any stretch, but I don't want to go lay lay an, lay an egg against them, looking ahead to Clemson coming off a big emotional win. Like, no, I I I I mean, this seems like exactly the type of thing a Schaefer team would do. This is even a thing an early Marone team would do. Is, is is lay that sort of egg. I've got us an early... I'll, we'll expand upon predictions later. I'd say if Dungy plays, give me 49-27. And if DeVito starts, give me 42-24. Um, I'm going to go on the assumption that Dungy's playing because it seems like they're not even there really entertaining the question right which could be gamesmanship but like i don't know i feel like everything was confident enough in him playing versus like oh we'll see um i'm gonna take syracuse i'll go 49 17 all right yeah i mean i like i said i think this defense is this defense is better it's shown itself to be better um i haven't looked at uconn's numbers in terms of sacks allowed if we can generate a lot of pressure against them I don't really think flushing Pindell out of the pocket's a good idea. <laughs> like, as a rule, we definitely have to keep him contained and get the sack. But in general, like, yeah, I, I think that this is this is classically, like, this is what a vintage Syracuse team would do, is, is look past UConn and route to, to, a, to a new national, you know, kickoff against Clemson. I think this team, hopefully, hopefully not. So I, I don't think, though, that the defense is going to look as good as it did last week. So you want to see, here's something funny. I'm, I have their, their profile open for Bill C. I don't know if his numbers are wrong. Mm. They could be. He has a 0.0% sack rate for UConn. So if that is accurate, that means that they have not been sacked yet, which I can't imagine is accurate. Hmm. This is the part where I pull up CFB stats. I guess it's possible, like, but... It's possible. But they've lost so... I mean, they've lost that <laughs> so, so definitively in two games, and then needed a last, like a what last minute or two minute touchdown to beat an FCS team. Like I have to imagine there were some sacks involved. There was it, w- apparently one sack. Huh. UConn has been sacked once in three games, and it was only for a three yard loss. They were uh, they one of the least sacked teams in the country. Oh, well, that's interesting. So, like, it's it sounds like it's somewhere in the middle. Like, Bill C has zero sacks. CFB sets is one. I can't imagine then that they've been set a lot. <laughs> so something, I mean, uh, that's it's bizarre. That's a strange. That's a strange number. I'm gonna say that Bill's numbers might have just overlooked the one sack because it was in garbage time, so it didn't matter. Oh, that's possible. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So that's pretty weird. 
that's I mean you got you got a quarterback that's that mobile no matter how bad your offensive line might be I mean we can attest to that like you you, you can find a way to avoid sacks if your quarterback knows how to get away from people yes granted I think we're our sack rate's not great but that's because our we're, we're at 80 we're worth 6.7 percent but some of that was like DeVito got sacked a couple times in the Western Michigan game in a short period of time just run the ball more than we stuff. used to that's true yeah, we've run the ball a lot. We, we ran the ball, like, last two games, we've run the ball, like, 50-something times each, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love the balance. I didn't love the balance in the first half this past week just because I felt like it was, like, like we were we were missing easy third down. Like, I mean, that those three straight run plays, the exact same play from the one, um, was, was giving me shades of Greg Robinson for a sec, the, the, the first go around and like I'm gonna watch it again tonight and I'm sure I'm gonna have some more things to say about it but I, I was terrified for a sec that was so infuriating just like that was also when it was like still three nothing or six nothing yeah like there was just so little creativity in what we were doing there and ugh, like I I was I was getting really annoyed with Babers for you know it happens here and there and there I'm a good fan of Babers but there have been times where his play calling hasn't been great through the couple of years now but man like it was it was so I just could not fathom why you run the exact same play three times in a row there. I just watched the Seattle Seahawks pump the ball about 20 yards. That was really awful. No, it was it was just like, just such, it doesn't make any sense why in the offense we run, why you would just pack the line in on a, you know, a drawing package like that and put no wrinkles in, no, uh, no throwback play, nothing. And also then like for what, two or three red zone possessions didn't try to spread them out for one play. Like, I get having a goal line package. I have no problem with that. Uh, but I think it should be a wrinkle. I hate just going to that by, as, like, the only way you're going to store inside the five when overall, like, you're a spread offense. Like, you should be able to at least attempt both. So that that all that really frustrated me. I'm glad we stopped doing it um, and, you know, didn't really have a problem storing the rest of the game. But that was really, really annoying and, and didn't like any part of that early on. Well, I do think in general, like, we've proven since Babers arrived, at least, that the only way we know how to score inside the five is, you know, via QB sneak. Um, I mean, we, we, we even had one, you know, against... We, I think we've had one every game now. We've had a QB sneak touchdown, and that's fine. But most of them have been from within the five. And it's pretty much the only way we know how to get the ball, you know, over the goal line. Like, even DeVito did it. And, and the fact that he didn't inspire the same fear that, that Dungey does probably says a lot about Dungey's play style also brought one of my favorite moments of Saturday when uh, Syracuse tweeted out, originally tweeted out the graphic congratulating Tommy and then a picture of Eric Dungey um, came up at the end of the video. Thank you, that Dan. Was, Thank I you, Dan, I, for I flagging that. very hard at that because <laughs> I saw it immediately and I watched it like four times to make sure I wasn't like going crazy. It was, it was so perfect. So many people picked up that tweet. The second part of the graphic was DeVito. So like, like you didn't watch your gif once when you published it? just so su it hurts um but yeah the 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 one thing that we that we started i feel like trying last year and have definitely had success on at least twice now this year is the uh the quick kind of like three yard ravian pierce pop pass to to score we waited a very long time to use play action in that game on saturday and i didn't understand why especially when we were close um pierce is the perfect weapon there um and and i really hope we see more of that because yeah he's the type of guy who He's going to excel when you use him in that fashion of create a quick mismatch. He's bigger than most of the linebackers. He's quicker than all the defensive linemen. Like, just have him quickly 
leap out, do a quick screen right behind the line, and you're in. Yeah, I mean, when you have Jamal Trustis and Ravian Pierce and the dose of Devin Butler, like, you have options for red zone passing. And Taj Harris, who sits too, like, who is not in the team. We have options there. It's not all 5'8 guys. So, yeah, you, you hope. And then, obviously, you even have the running backs who are pretty adept pass catchers. Like, we should be able to figure this out. And also, um, let's start to see maybe some Jarvie and Howard in these short yard situations and not just Mo Neal, who I think Mo, for, for his size, has done a decent job. But He's improved um, a hell of a lot. Yes. But, like, Jarvie Howard with a Chris Ellen Morley block is a lot of a lot of man to keep out of the end zone. So I, I support that being a, a look that we see going forward. And Dungey, obviously. When, like, it's not a bad option when you have Dungey, who's a big, a, you know, really big quarterback. Like, I, I think it's a fine option. I don't think it needs to be, like, our only... It, we need to find other ways to get, get the ball in the end zone from inside the five. It's not going to work every single time because, like, we, we, we're just way too predictable down there, I think. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, give it to give it to Pierre. Give it to Howard. I, like, I'm looking at SU's rushing numbers now. Dungy's still first, 277 yards, 7.9 average. Neil's second, 230 yards, 4.0 average. Not great, but to be honest, I think a lot of it is, like, he's also become much more dependable on third down, and he's been in a lot of short yardage situations and, like, killing out the clock situations, so that probably kills the average a little bit. Jarvie and Howard, 18 carries, 124 yards. I know some of that's garbage time. Give this man the football. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... I totally agree. Like, let's just—I want to see it. Um, we've, we've we've talked about it now for a couple of weeks. Like, just really, really interested in it. Also, going back to something I brought up before, kind of backs up my inclination. Uh, the sack rate. Dungey's only been sacked three percent of the time. It's um, mostly Devito, and I imagine it was mostly Devito in Western Mission. I think he got sacked like a couple times in that game in a very short amount of time. But Devito's been sacked eleven point eight percent of the time. He's dropped back, huh. so that's not great. But I think a lot of that was like deer in headlight situation plus like the weird snap issues. I don't think he got sacked that much in Florida State, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe once. Yeah, so I think that should be less of an issue going forward. But Dungy's three percent is very good. I would agree. Um, yeah, I think he was only sacked once against Western Michigan or Wagner, and that might have been it. Um, so, with the rest of our time, because I think we already picked UConn, I don't necessarily know if we need to go into any further detail. Um, sorry, people who are looking for an in-depth breakdown of UConn. I think that this will be the last week where we're kind of skating by on future opponents. I feel like we, we, we dove into Florida State a bit last week. UConn, not as much. Um, but, you know, all these... There's not much to know. They have a quarterback who's interesting, and they're pretty bad otherwise. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a game we should win. I'm looking at Bill C's numbers in terms of upcoming games. Um and for those who haven't checked it out, Bill uh, recently tweeted it about his uh, his team profiles. They're on ex- they're on Google Drive this year, so not as easy to access. But nonetheless, like you'll find some interesting stuff there. Andy should for Tuesday or Wednesday is going to be posting something on the blog, diving into some of the bigger uh, statistical um, anomalies and interesting points. Um, so assuming we that the win probabilities here are correct, um, SU would get to four wins. After the UConn game, they have a 5% chance to beat Clemson. Um, I think that's completely fair, to be honest. Um, and then at Pitt, 45% chance to win. Um, that puts that puts us at a cumulative 4.5 uh, wins going into the bye week. But like you mentioned earlier, like kind of the meat of the schedule is where it gets really, really interesting. Uh, we're getting a 75% chance to beat North Carolina, according to S&P+. 
48% chance to beat NC State at home. Um, that might drift upwards. We really haven't seen enough from the Wolfpack to tell. Um, at Wake Forest, we're getting a 42% chance. Um, some of that bump, or to be honest, the majority of that bump is from Wake Forest being at home. We're getting a 68% shot at Louisville. The Cardinals look very bad so far. 20% versus Notre Dame. I feel like that's low. I'd, I'd probably give us like a 30% shot to beat them. Yeah, Notre Dame has not, not like they beat Michigan and that was impressive, but it was really like one really good half they had and right. then like a solid defensive performance in the second half. But I mean, they only beat Ball State by eight and they only beat, I mean, I think Vandy's improved this year, but they only beat Vandy by five at home. Those are not great performances. Not at all. And Especially then, when Ball State went and got blasted by Indiana this weekend. I think Indiana's fine, but they're not like a stellar team. Indiana so is like. Ball State's anything special. Indiana's 23rd in SP Plus right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know I knew that, but I think a lot of that's blasting Ball State, who right. hung with Notre Dame. I don't think Ball State's a, a really great MAC team. I, w- I imagine they'll probably be like a roughly a bowl team, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think Notre Dame, uh, I definitely think that is a closer game than what the what those numbers look at right now. But yeah, it's a lot of toss-ups. UNC, right now, basically, this win opens up ba- where we need to win basically one game that's going to be a coin flip, assuming we take care of business against UNC and against UConn. Uh, and that's a really good place to be, I think. Because we've lost, we've lost almost all the coin flips in recent years, so even if we only won one of them this year, we'd still be going balling. Yeah, and and that's still the goal. I think once we if once we get to six wins, assuming assuming it happens, and I know I'm being very presumptuous, then let's start to like dream a little bigger. But let's lock down the six wins first. And I know we're kind of now going right back to the thing we made fun of earlier in the in the podcast, where <laughs> people were were like focusing on the next opponent. I, I, I'm fine. I'm fine like navel gazing a little bit. And uh, we brought up like the numbers. I think right now, if uh, if the person that was in the comments of Bill C's uh, S and P post. We have a better percent chance at nine wins than five wins, which is awesome. I saw that. And I saw the fact that we have like a ninety-two percent chance to go bowling. We have like a like a forty-eight or forty-nine percent chance to win seven games or more. Yeah, these are all really cool things. Um, I think I'm still a little skeptical about how much more than six we're going to get, just because we have this recent history of like just not winning these twenty flip games, at least since the twenty thirteen season. Right. Um, so hopefully that will not be the case. This is a different season. But even if it's not a different season, Sitz wins is right in our in our our grasp here, and we should be able to beat one of at Pitt, NC State, at Wake Forest, Louisville, tossing Notre Dame at BC. Like one of those games, we have, we have to be able to win one of those five. Like otherwise, it's a complete calamity again, like season collapse. And not that we aren't very accustomed to that, but like. Yeah, for now. optimism that something will change this season and we'll, we'll be able to, to pull out one of those plus UNC plus UConn. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, to, to end the schedule talk at least, um, if I'm ranking the games in order of, of sure losses, Clemson number one, BC number two to me, to be honest. Yeah, they've definitely been the second best team so far on this on the slate. Uh, plus, it's on the road. They just seem very content in doing what they do. Obviously, I haven't played anyone super impressive yet, but winning at Wake Forest is, is a pretty good win. Like, Wake, Wake's look quite good, so I agree there. They haven't been, like, super tested, but I, I think they've they've done everything you could possibly ask of them so far. Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, one Clemson, two BC, because they've been terrifying, three Notre Dame, four Wake. I think tie for five is Louisville, NC State, Pitt, in some order. 
I think. I think Louisville really sucks this year, to be honest, and it's exactly what you and I said during the offseason. They might really suck, and they still scare me enough. Right. Juwan Pass, like, still scares me. I know he hasn't been great, but... He also didn't even really play on Saturday. Yeah. And might not at all anymore. There's enough talent there, plus they have the dual-threat quarterback who's backing him up, whose name escapes me. Um, He was actually pretty good. Yeah, so... And they still only beat Western Kentucky by three. Yes. Louisville scares me stylistically, even though they're the worst of those three teams. I'd say I'd probably think Pitt is the most likely win, even though they're on the road. NC State, I think, is just competent enough where it's going to be tough. Um, and Louisville, it's they're not competent, but they're talented. Although we just saw us beat Florida State. So any of those three like could be a win, but none of them would surprise me as a loss either, um, unfortunately. But, you know, if we hang with Clemson in two weeks and then, you know, we'll have a chance to – to knock off Pitt and we'll be knocking on the door. So we'll see. Agreed. If we hang with Clemson and it's like a legitimately competitive game. All bets are off. <laughs> yeah, then we're, then we're like, we're really looking at something, I think. Not to get too ahead of ourselves. Fair. Uh, one, one other reason why not to get too ahead of ourselves, and again, Andy's going to dive into this stat a little bit more, and one you and I talked about earlier um, before the podcast. Um, Syracuse so far, their average field position for starting drives, the uh, 43.9 yard line. That is um, best in the country. That is in part a product of Western Michigan and Wagner endorsing the same stupid strategy of just kicking Western it. Michigan having a bad punter and Wagner getting blocked into the end zone. <laughs> well, but it's also the fact that they just decided, oh, we're not going to kick to Sean Riley. We're just going to kick to one of the other ridiculously fast guys that's on the front line in front of him. And, and that guy's going to proceed to, to run it back 20 yards. I don't know if the... If the onside kicks get counted out, I assume they do. Um, uh, no, but I think those are just starting drives. Do they count as Strickland's? Strickland's had two of like the best onside kick returns I can remember. Yeah, just just a clean catch and run twenty five yards. <laughs> right, like he gets he gets a head of steam. He catches the ball and just rips it for like fifteen to twenty yards un, unscathed, which is awesome. And I really hope he returns one of those this year. Yeah, I uh, I, I think he will. Hopefully we're up by enough to, to make that happen. Um, but yes, I don't think that's necessarily sustainable um, to have that sort of starting field position. It's also helped nullify the fact that SU's offense is significantly less efficient this year than they were last year. Garbage time's taken out of most of that. Um, so it's not just like penalizing us for, you know, taking three plays to, to pick up first downs or, or, or turning it over or whatever. Like, we're 77th in terms of efficiency this year. We were 62nd in terms of efficiency last year, and that's accounting for the last three games when, like, for two and a half of those, we were really bad on offense. So I do think those two things are kind of evening one another out. Um, if we were operating at last year's efficiency and had this year's field position, I think we'd really be, you know, we'd really have something on our hands. I think that's just something to watch, To I'm not going to say that, that it's a reason why we're not going bowling or whatever, but I think it's something to watch in terms of how this team progresses and if this team starts to fall apart based on that alone. I'm not, I'm not too worried about it yet. I think the games have been weird enough where it's hard to get a great sense. Like, we haven't played a really normal game yet. No. We played uh, the bizarre-ass Michigan, <laughs> Western Michigan game. We played an FCS opponent, and then we played Florida State where our quarterback switch was made in the late second quarter, and like we found ourselves after a bizarre first half. So I, I, we haven't played like a maybe, – maybe this team just won't play any normal football games, but it, there hasn't been like a just what you expect uh, from a you know, first to fourth quarter standpoint of a, uh, any kind of a college game. 
so I'm not going to worry too much about that yet, but it's still something worth it. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you think we end up, what, what if we end up with like the first ever like dumb season? Because like we... Just every game is, at least it'd be interesting. Like we'll have something to talk about every week. Well, because we had, because like the Western Michigan game ended up being a dumb game because it was in the second half. Florida State, you and I were talking about it in the first half, was on track to be a whole new classification of dumb game, and and then somehow turned into a great game, and no longer needed the dumb game classification. But like, if if every game but the Wagner game has a dumb game half, I I, I feel like that's a new record. I think in the offseason we need to explore this more fully. <laughs> the dumb game um, theory, because the 2010 and 2012 seasons. Both great seasons in recent Syracuse history had plenty of dumb games. So I don't know that they were full se- dumb seasons, but I think they were they were skewed towards dumb more often than not. I honestly think, as much as I love Marone, that Marone was just like a magnet for dumb games. I mean, he coaches Blake Bortles, so but like the team wasn't coached- talented enough to like the, the, like the team was always well coached, but it wasn't always talented enough to take advantage of that. And that's yes. how you get a dumb game. It's the Maroon seasons were, were adventure. Even twenty eleven, like had like the way oh, we finished God. the season, there were definitely some dumb laws. Like the pit game was like maybe the dumbest game we've had. And, and uh or Ruck, at least the, the, it ranked the, up there highly. The Rutgers game. Yes. Was, was, like, was those, the epitome of dumb games. And the 09 Louisville game. The Maroon era just was so many dumb games. Most of the them. The Shaper era far less so because there was so many bad losses. Schaefer's dumb games were actually mostly wins, but, but like Marone's were almost exclusively losses. Yeah, like was it 2012 where like we had like three or four losses by like single digit point total? Like, yeah. Wait, we're, oh no, oh nine, we were like oh nine, single yeah, digits from going to a bowl. Yeah, we were very close to going game, to a bowl game. The Minnesota game. Um. Yeah. God, Marone's Marone's tenure was bizarre. Go Jags. And he finished exactly 25 and 25, if I'm not mistaken. He did. And now he is coaching Blake Bortles to... <laughs> and the Super Bowl winning Jacksonville win, Wins in, in New England. Well, no, they were in Jacksonville this weekend. But almost beat the Patriots in the AFC Championship last year. And Bortles threw for, like, damn near 400 yards this weekend. I just uh, hope you're ready for the 14-2 and two Jacksonville Jaguars to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> I Ready? I'm fully supporting it if the Packers don't. The, the Jags are easily my number two team right now. The Jags have always been my number two team. And, 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 I, and I have photos to prove it of me in a Mark Brunel jersey <laughs> from when I was a kid. But let me tell you, like, when the Jags win the Super Bowl, um, how much money does Jerry Jones offer Doug Marone and how much does Doug laugh in his face and say no? Doug will, Doug will not leave Tom Coughlin. No. There's no chance of that happening. And he, and he won't go to Dallas. And Sean Conn is just, will just give him what he wants. Like, Sean Conn has to be thrilled. Doug Marone's going to be the emperor of Dubai. Doug Marone <laughs> is, like, legitimately, it's hard to argue against him being a top 10 NFL coach right now. Probably, like, closer to, I'm not going to commit to top five, but he's probably in the five to 10 range pretty solidly. I, I don't know how you could doubt it, to be honest. Like, who do you take ahead of Doug Marone? Undou- I know we're just venturing off into like crazy territory now at the end of this podcast, but whatever, we're gonna finish it up so we already talked about UConn. Like it's Belichick. It's like <laughs> I mean, I really wouldn't take too many coaches over. The problem is like there's enough questions about like with the Saints have looked bad this year uh, so far. So like Sean Payton, I don't know if you're like he's probably deserves to be up there still to, based on last season on the Super Bowl. 
but I don't know. Like, I'm going to pull up the list of NFL coaches. I just want to see, like, who who you could even make an argument is better than Doug Marone right now. Belichick's the only coach I would definitively take. Um, I think Peterson's made enough random decisions. I think Carroll's on the way down. Um, Atlanta speaks for itself with what's his I think you'd make I think you'd make an argument for John Harbaugh, although it's not a great argument. Mm. Um, I don't buy I think it. You can, I think you make an argument for... Uh, Tomlin? Tomlin, even though, it's again, it's not definitive. Andy Reid, uh, McVay. I feel like Reid's Philadelphia tenure <laughs> blocks out the Chiefs' tenure. Well, his his like late season tenure, yeah. but he did a lot of winning there. He did. Uh, McVay, I think, is fair. He's been very good. Belichick, Peyton, going down the list. Tomlin. That's, that's the list. The NFL has a lot of seven. shitty coaches. Yes, there are seven coaches who you could and Carroll. I'll put Carroll in there. You could still make the argument. There are eight coaches total that you could make a cogent argument is be- are better than Doug Marone. And I'm not saying that they all are better than Doug Marone. I'm saying you could only really list eight, and it won't be ridiculous. I'd put him oh, top. Oh, Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson should be in there. That's nine. I, I would honestly put – I would put Doug fourth at worst. Not even that's kidding. Not, that's not – it's not crazy. Like, it's really not. He's done – the Jags were so bad for so long, and he's doing it. And, like, I I think there's a chance that, that Bortles is, like, not as bad as a lot of people think. And it's just not an it's not the obvious why, but still, it's not like he has a superstar quarterback, <laughs> and he has a great defense and a good enough running game, and he just they just get it done in big games offensively, weirdly, and it's just it's it's strange how he's how he's made it happen, but I think this year he already he's kind of proving it's not it wasn't a fluke last season. Yeah, I uh, I'm glad we had this foray into uh, Troy Noon's and Absolute Jacks cast because this is. I don't know how we got here. We, we, uh, we started talking about last twenty-five minutes of this podcast. Started talking about dumb games, and then just ended up talking right. about the Jags. Yes. Um, um, yeah, we're, we're gonna. We're, I think we're gonna have to talk about the Jags every week until the Jags lose. Oh, I'm I'm, I'm fine dedicating like five minutes to the Jags just to keep on adding just ridiculous segments to this podcast that service a very small fraction of of our of our listener base after we after we got the hate comments last week i'm kind of we kind of just want to double down now the can we call this the the cringeworthy uh jaguar segment yeah that's fine <laughs> just plug it in right behind yeah. the beer yeah just plug it right behind the beer just just have a whole i'll, I'll spin off all the episodes into like assholes talk about the jags which is <laughs> like the special edition i'll do the box set when the jags win the super bowl you'll get a commercial out of it Doug Marone is an absolute majaj <laughs> Christ. But producer Lewis just is sitting next to me and just looked at me with such disdain. Lewis <laughs> just shaking his head repeatedly. Lewis, <laughs> I hope you've got some. At all. Hope you've got some Photoshop skills because we're getting Doug Marone in a magician's hat. We have to. We have to hit up Andy on Slack. Right Jaguar now. boss. Oh, Christ. Anyway, this this podcast is done. Uh, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Troy Noon's An Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. And go Orange. Go Orange.
Huge savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000 square foot showroom is Court certified, guaranteed, and in stock. Ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chandelier Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. Up to 70% off. That's right, at Court Furniture Clearance Center. Get up to 70% off new retail prices and choose from a wide variety of previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. All items are court certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Make the smart choice and visit one of our five locations in the DMV or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off.